This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Luminary Media and Belted Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Marvin Ellison, CEO of Lowe's Home Improvement. I can count at least 10 times where I've been passed over for promotions. And when you're passed over 10 times in the course of your career for promotional opportunities, it's not easy to stay resilient and, and stay motivated, but, but I have. How Marvin Ellison went from security guard to becoming the CEO of two major Fortune 500 companies. So if you look at the list of Fortune 500 CEOs, a total of three are African-American. It's a pretty small group, not even 1%. Actually, 0.6% of the CEOs on that list. And in this very small group is one person who has led not one, but two Fortune 500 companies. And that person is Marvin Ellison. Marvin is pretty used to beating the odds. While he was in business school, he started working as a security guard at Target. He stayed there even after he graduated, and he worked his way up to a pretty high position. He then went on to Home Depot, where after years of working his way up and proving himself, he got a chance to help that company turn around in the midst of a financial crisis. And then he completely changed industries and became CEO of JCPenney and was in the midst of turning around that ailing company when he got a call from Lowe's. In 2017, the CEO of Lowe's Home Improvement announced he was retiring after 12 years. At that point, Lowe's had become the second biggest consumer home improvement company in the world with a market cap of more than $60 billion. But sales were stagnant. Lowe's had as many stores as its rival, Home Depot, but not nearly as much market share. So the board conducted a months-long search to find the right person. And in the end, they chose Marvin. And what's even more amazing about Marvin's story of beating the odds is that he's a self-described introvert. He was often passed over for promotions, and he says nearly every executive job he's held, he got because his predecessor was fired. He was the one who always took the tough assignments, who always got thrown into crises, and in the end, became something of a turnaround wizard. And the grit that it took to face these challenges really came from growing up in Brownsville, Tennessee, where Marvin watched his parents work really hard to give him and his siblings a better life. My dad was a sharecropper. Uh, he actually worked in the field the day that I was born. Wow. Uh, and my mom at the time was working as a maid at a truck stop motel. Uh, my dad tells this really funny story, and he tells me the story every birthday that when I was born, my mom was delivered via a midwife. And my dad said that when I was born, he went into the room to pay the midwife, and the entire fee for my delivery was $14. <laughs> and he said because he had worked in the field that day, he had cash, and she was so impressed that he had the entire amount 
that she gave him a discount. And he said, so I cost only $12 and he's still waiting for me to pay him. <laughs> and that's a true story. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I mean, did you have ambitions from, from a young age? I mean, did you, did you think, you know, I'm going to get out of this place. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go somewhere to a city or, or I'm going to you know, do something bigger than this. I had the best childhood that you can imagine, even after talking about my dad being a sharecropper and my mom working in that motel. From my earliest remembrance of understanding the English language, my parents would say to me and my siblings, you can be anything you want. You can be the president of the United States. You can achieve any level of success as long as you focus on three fundamental things. First, you have to always understand that it will come from hard work. Two, you have to understand the importance of getting an education because they felt that they had missed out on that opportunity because of the segregated society they grew in, grew up in, and because their parents and the people that raised them just didn't have a real vision for the power of education. And third, strong belief in God. So all of those things reinforce my belief that I could be anything I wanted to be. And as I grew up in that small town, in that rural community, I would go outside in my front yard often, and I could look to the north, south, east, and west. I couldn't see anything that gave me really a natural kind of intellectual view of what the future could be because my surroundings were just so primitive and, and they were just so rural and, and so limited. But, but there was something inside of me from that earlier time because of the influences of my parents that led me to believe that there was something bigger for me out there. Didn't know what it was, but, but I knew that, that my plight in life was not to grow up in that a small rural community and, and be limited by my surroundings. And my parents would say often that you cannot allow your surroundings to limit your vision of the future. So that's a long answer to saying, I always believe that God had a bigger plan for me, that there were larger things for me to do. And my parents encouraged that from my earliest remembrance of understanding words. I guess, um... I guess you went off to, to college at the University of Memphis um, when, when it's time for you to go to college. And, and I read that when you were a, a student on campus, you used to walk around with a, a briefcase. Is that, is that true? Yeah, it's actually true. You know, I, I just felt like that I was trying to project kind of where I wanted to be. I, I didn't, obviously I didn't have a lot. I was going to school via financial aid and student loans. Uh, but I always felt, as I said, growing up in that small town, that there was more for me. And so I knew I wanted to be a business person. I, I didn't know what that was. My dad ultimately transitioned from working with his hands and working with his back to being a salesperson and ultimately became a, a very successful local salesperson operating on a hundred percent commission. So the reason why that's important to why I carried a briefcase is because even though I grew up in this rural community with most of my friends on farms and their dads working in factories and, you know, driving, you know, tractors and doing mechanics work, my dad left home every day with a tie on, uh, carrying a briefcase. It's it's almost like it's almost like the old um, the old expression, you know, 
dress for success, right? That if you go out of the house with a, with a tie on, then then your self-image is of a person who is important, who needs to, to wear those clothes to, to project something that, you know, signals something to the world. That is a, a statement that I live by even to this day. What I teach uh, a lot of young managers when I'm talking to them about characteristics of being successful and, and some of the kind of practices that I've employed myself over the years, I always tell them that you always dress one level above your title uh, because you don't want to dress like your peers, you want to dress like your boss. And that carrying that briefcase on campus was a way of me you know, projecting to myself as much as to the outside world what I wanted to be. Did, did you already, at a young age, already in college, like see yourself, see your future as somebody who is going to be running a huge organization, somebody who, who's going to be doing really big things? Did, did you see yourself that way? That's a great question. And, and I'll, I'll give you a, a very critical event that happened to me that, that really helped to just give me an enormous amount of confidence. When, when, I, when I went to the University of Memphis, it was called Memphis State at the time. It's really a big urban college. It had 23,000 students. And so I'm coming from this really small town and I'm transitioning to this major university. And I remember going to my freshman English class. And I'm in there with, I don't know, 30 students or so. And the first assignment was write a one-page essay, essay on a momentous occasion that happened in your 12th grade year. And so I put something together. The next class, the professor, you know, handed out all the essays with the exception of mine. And he asked, is, where's Marvin Ellison? Raise your hands. So I raised my hand. He said, Mr. Ellison, uh, wait, I want to chat with you after class. Something, well, that can't be good. So I hang around, and this young professor asked me a simple question. He said, where did you go to high school? So I told him. He said, what did you study? I, we talked about it. He said, what did you read? So I explained how limited my kind of reading assignments were. And, and he handed me my paperback, and there were more red marks on that paper, it seemed, than what I would actually written myself. And he said, Mr. Ellison, you're going to have to work really hard. He said, the only way... You're going to get out of this class and get out of this university. You're going to have to put an enormous amount of effort because your high school simply didn't prepare you to be successful at major university. And he said, these are my office hours. And if you're committed about doing better, uh, you can come see me and I will do all I can to help you. But you're going to have to do the work and it's going to require some commitment. And, and I was devastated. And so I kind of walked out with my head down and I decided, you know, I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to go back home. Uh, without my degree. And so I, I, I remember the next day I met him at his office and I told him I'm, I'm willing to do the work. And so he gave me a list of books that I had to go to the library to read on my own time uh, just to help improve my ability to write and my ability to meet the rigors of a college English course. And, and I went to work. And at the end of that semester, there were three kids that got an A in English and I was one of them. I'm not going to sit here today and tell you that that I walked away from that saying I'm going to run a big company, but I walked away from that saying that there's nothing at this university or anywhere that's going to limit me or prevent me from achieving the goals and aspirations I have for myself. Hmm. So, so while you were in college, um, you started working at Target, I should say um, a, a local Target in Memphis, um, as a security guard. 
And you actually continued working there, like even after you graduated. Um, but I guess over over time, you somehow worked your way up to a pretty high ranking position at corporate headquarters. How, how did that happen? Like, was it was it a slow progression, or or did somebody kind of see see potential in you and give you a chance? Like, how, yeah, how did it happen? Well, it's it's a combination of a lot of things, but that's exactly right. So, I graduate from the University of Memphis. Uh, it's 1989. Uh, the economy is not great. It was really difficult in Memphis. Uh, I had met uh, my soon-to-be wife, who was still a student, and I desperately wanted to stay in Memphis after I graduated, but I couldn't find anything because I had a degree in marketing, and my, my goal was to be a sales rep. Couldn't find anything in Memphis. So I decided to stay at Target out of default. Huh. And, and the toughest thing for me to do was to graduate on Saturday and go back to work on Monday and clock in. Wow. Because I still didn't have an executive. I was still on, on the clock. I was an hourly employee after I graduated. And, and so I applied for a security manager. We call it asset protection manager role in Memphis. Uh, a couple of months after that, uh, and I just totally just engulf myself in retail. I want to learn everything about how the front end systems work, how receiving work, how the price change system, how merchandise flowed in. Yeah. And what I found out is the more I learned about retail, the better I got at my job. And the better I got at my job, the more I enjoyed my job. Right. And all of a sudden, I'll never forget this day, I'm in the store with three of my peers were doing an audit in a new store. Two or three hours into the audit with my peers, we're in the office and we're just complaining about not being paid enough. You know, the hmm. work is rigorous. You know, just a typical thing you tend to do when you get with people, you know, in your in your same position. And we get a phone call in the office that we had a visitor. Someone was coming in from the corporate office and it was our vice president of the entire function had decided to visit Memphis unannounced. Wow. And this guy's name was King Rogers. So King comes in the office and he said, oh, this is great. I got four asset protection managers. Uh, he said, let's just do a little mini town hall. What can I take back to the corporate office to make your lives easier? <laughs> and before I could say anything, a couple of guys jumped in and said, King, everything is just great, man. We love working here. We think it's fabulous. And I'm saying to myself, man, just 30 minutes ago, we were just complaining about everything. <laughs> so I said, King, I got one issue. I said, we got this new system that was rolled out that screens and accepts checks. I said, this system is very uncustomer friendly, and we've been getting a ton of complaints. Huh. And, and my three colleagues were just mortified that I had said that. I could look in their eyes and say, oh, Marvin, what have you done? And so King looks at me and said, okay, give me some more feedback. So I gave him some more. Then he said, well, give me a couple of recommendations on it. If you were me, what would you do to fix this? And so I gave him a couple of examples. And so King picked up the phone and said, give me a second. And my peers are looking at me kind of out of the corner of the eyes saying, oh, you've done it now. And he hangs the phone up and he said, uh, you know, Marvin, he said, what's really frustrating is that I've been out visiting stores all week long, and you're the first person to have the courage to tell me how bad the system is. He said, I just got off the phone and asked him to shut this pilot down. And I would love to leave here right now and visit you in your store to spend a little time to get to know you. So King comes to my store 
And he's spending time with me walking the store. And of course, my store manager is there and he's nervous because this guy's from the corporate office. And so King is, you know, very curious about, tell me about Memphis. What's the political environment here? What's the socioeconomic issues? And my store manager is totally clueless to any of this. But, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty inquisitive person. I'm intellectually curious. So I read the newspaper every day. I watch the news. I'm pretty informed. So I'm giving King the whole kind of dissertation on Memphis, politics, socioeconomic, you know, kind of, you know, companies that are driving the, the economic engine. And he is just totally immersed in the fact that I know all of this stuff. Yeah. About a month later, I get an invitation from the corporate office to be a member of the Corporate Diversity and Inclusion Council. And I was recommended for that position by King Rogers. Wow. And I, I fly to Minneapolis. When I go to Minneapolis, I meet people from around the company, have some great spirited sessions about diversity and inclusion. I meet someone who's in Florida, opening up that market. They're very impressed with me. They ask, would I be interested in moving to Florida? Before you know it, I'm promoted, and now I'm working in Florida. And from there, five years later, I'm now working in Minneapolis, and I'm reporting to none other than King Rogers. And five years after that, I'm back at the corporate office after he's retired, and I'm responsible for the entire field organization for Target. Wow. So you stayed at Target doing um, doing asset protection, which which is essentially making sure that there's as little theft or fraud as as possible. Um, you stayed there for for I think like 15 years before you left to go work at Home Depot. How did how did that happen? How did you get the chance to to go to Home Depot? Well, it's interesting. Uh, when when King retired from Target. Uh, they replaced him with someone else. So I, I did not get the VP role. And so there was a a chance encounter. I was chatting with someone before going on spring break vacation while at Target. And they had mentioned that Home Depot's vice president of that function had left the company just in a chance conversation. And so I went home and chatted with my wife uh, about should I pursue this? And she said, you know, absolutely. And so I pursued it. And it was during the time where Bob Nordelli had joined Home Depot. And, and so I thought that coming in with a new CEO was a better way to enter the company, not knowing that I was walking into the greatest cultural tug of war <laughs> that I could ever imagine during that time. And that was roughly 2002 when I joined Home Depot after 15 years at Target. And what did you make of the company when you first got there? I mean, was it because you relearn and kind of, I guess, you know, you're you're learning an entirely new culture, right? Yeah, but I had no idea that the culture was gonna be so different. When, When people would ask me, what was the difference between the culture at Target and Home Depot? I would say, well, they're, Home Depot and Target has two things in common. One, they're both world-class retailers. And two, they both are on the same planet. Everything else is different. But for me, it was important to change companies at that time because I felt that I had 
been typecast, for lack of a better description, at Target. I've been in the same asset protection function for 15 years, and I had a desire, obviously, to do more than that. And so when I when I came to Home Depot during the interview process, I had to interview with the chairman CEO at the time, it was Bob Nodell. And when Bob asked me at the end of the interview, do you have any questions for me? My only question was, I would really love to get into the operational side of the business. I would really love to you know, own a PL. If if I take this role, will you give me an opportunity to do something else? And he said to me, you have my commitment that if you come in, you deliver on the commitments that we give you, that you'll have a chance to do something else because I believe that leadership is transferable. So I came into Home Depot based on you know that commitment from Bob, and he was true to his word after two years of really delivering on the expectations, being able to create some value and some pretty significant, you know, profit savings in that function, he gave me a chance to run the logistics function for the company. And that was my first first opportunity to get outside of asset protection. Hmm. So you, you get to Home Depot in 2002, um, and over the next sort of few years, you, you rise to a very senior post to executive vice president. And I think back in the, in the 80s and 90s, Home Depot had just been really like rapidly expanding. It was it was a powerhouse. Um, and there was actually a slowdown in the early 2000s. Um, and then, of course, by 2008, you, ha- you have the financial crisis um, and p- profits for pretty much every major company begin to fall. Um, and you are, I guess, kind of tasked or charged with trying to reverse this. Um, so w- what did you do? Well, you know, it was so interesting. Uh, during the financial crisis, Home Depot lost roughly $13 billion in volume in less than two years. We were really in the epicenter. You know, you had two epicenters. You had obviously the financial industry, but then you had housing. And and, and Home Depot was right in the middle of that whole housing segment. And so our business was dramatically impacted, you know, due to the fact that people were not refinancing their homes. They were not doing large home improvement projects. And, And so Rather than spending capital to grow stores, we would spend capital to make the business more efficient and more productive. And that was, that seems like a very intuitive decision now, but it wasn't nearly as intuitive back in 2007, 2008. It was, it was a, it was a, it was a big strategic departure from how other retailers were, were thinking. And so Home Depot, is a classic example of a company that took advantage of a downturn and, and came out of the recession a stronger company than it was going into the recession. So you so you basically decided that that given the circumstances, you had to to reverse course and actually stop expanding. We, we did. The I give Frank Blake, the uh, CEO at that time, credit for understanding that the future growth of the company would not be driven by increasing square footage of stores. As a matter of fact, we had gone from a company in the early days of Home Depot that was iconic for its commitment to the customer and these wonderful examples of customer service to a company that was a cautionary tale, that you know service was was waning. There were all these horrific stories about 
you know, poorly trained, poorly staffed stores where customers felt that they were not being properly cared for. And so we had to reverse that trend in a way that we could create, recreate the loyalty and, and the customer service that the company had been founded on. And, 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 that, and that was really one of my core responsibilities in addition to modernizing the stores so that we could reduce expense while improving service. And, and, and that's what we worked on for the time I was in that role. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wisdom. Okay, so, so Home Depot, obviously, you, you're like on the fast track. And I mean, you're, you're like, you know, on a sort of a rocket ship trajectory probably to run that company um, had you decided to stay there. But, uh, but I guess in, in 2014, you got another opportunity. You had... Um, you moved to an entirely new organization, to J.C. Penney. Um, first of all, why did you decide to leave Home Depot for J.C. Penney, which at the time was, you know, like a, a failing legacy company? Well, a, a couple, couple of things happened. Uh, Frank Blake decided to retire, uh, and and when he made that decision, uh, he recommended to the board that Craig Manier who was my colleague running merchandising. Craig ran merchandising, I ran stores. Uh, Frank recommended that Craig be viewed as his successor. And, 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 so, and so when that happened, uh, it was pretty clear that my role at Home Depot was very secure, but it was gonna be secure as an executive vice president. But for me, the question was, is this going to be enough to keep me challenged, 
and to keep me engaged if the next five years I'm going to be doing virtually the same role. And then all of a sudden I get this, I, I get this opportunity to go to consider working at JCPenney. And my first instinct was not necessarily want to do that. I think I'll just kind of stay here. And my wife, whom I've been with for 33 years, just recommended to me, you know, just it's not a bad thing to just go uh, and hear them out. And, and so we we prayed about it because I don't, you know, excuse away the fact that you know, my religion is important to me. And, sure, and, and, sure. and my wife and I prayed and we decided to, you know, go go see kind of what the opportunity was. So long story short, I, I go up and I meet with, with Mike Allman. And Mike Allman was the former chairman CEO, right? And, and he he had come back in on an interim basis after uh, Ron Johnson had left the company. And, and Ron Johnson, I guess, for... Uh, for some context, we should explain. He came from Apple. He was he was the guy who sort of created the Apple stores and, and was brought to JCPenney to kind of revive its fortunes. Um, but, you know, for a variety of reasons, to, to say the least, it did not work out. Exactly. And, and so my wife asked me, she said, well, how will you know if this is the right position to take? What will you lean on when you go up to meet with Mike Ullman and members of the board. I said, well, this company is coming through a very traumatic, very poorly executed CEO succession. So I'm sure whomever takes this job is going to have to spend a little time working with Mike in a transition. So it's going to be real important for me to get a feel for this Mike Ullman guy to see if he's someone that I could work with. And you know, within the first five minutes, it was pretty obvious that Mike Ullman was a special guy, and he felt strongly that my background and what I had gone through working with Home Depot through the financial crisis, through their own version of a very difficult CEO succession, would be very useful and would be critically important and also the company was on the brink, to your point. You had 100-plus thousand employees that were at risk of not having a company. And, and so I decided, you know what? This is something not only that will be very intellectually challenging, it will be something that will be incredibly beneficial if we can save this company and we can find a way to take this iconic brand and give it a reason for being, and and I decided to take the job. All right, so you come into JCPenney, um, and, and give me a sense. I mean, f- from what I understand, when you got there, I mean, they were hemorrhaging money. They they were in really serious trouble, right? Um, I mean, th- this was this is one of the great retailers in American history, a huge legacy company, but it was just getting hammered by H and M and Forever Twenty One and fast fashion and and going through layoffs and store closures is that right? Am I am I painting the picture correctly? You're painting it perfectly correct. Uh, to put it in in perspective, J C Penney had gone from a company that was paying a dividend, had roughly nineteen billion dollars in revenue, to when I arrived, their revenue was down to eleven billion. Uh, they had over $6 billion in debt, and their free cash flow was a negative $2.7 billion. 
So that's what I walked into. And, you know, I went in with my eyes wide open, but I went in with a belief that there were a couple of things that we could do. We could stabilize the company first, and then when you stabilize the company, we could try to find ways for the company uh, to grow. But there are three important things I learned from my experience there. And, and I look at my time at JCPenney as a success, and I'll, I'll define to you in a moment why I see it as a success. The three important things I learned was, number one, the importance of not losing your core customer. Right. One of the critical strategic mistakes made is that JCPenney decided that they needed a different customer base for them to have future growth potential, and they want to walk away from the traditional kind of more mature customer, and they want it to be a more hip, more cool retailer that millennials hmm. would be interested in buying clothes and accessories from. And the way I describe it to people is the equivalent of a guy being in high school dating the same girl for three years, and then as the senior prom approaches, he decides to tell her that he's no longer interested and he's going to make a run for the homecoming queen. And the homecoming queen tells him she's not interested, so he goes to the prom by himself. Hmm. The second thing I learned was you have to eliminate communication filters between the CEO and the front line. What was so interesting for me is when I arrived, I couldn't believe that most of the frontline executives, store managers, assistant managers, hourly employees had no idea the company was losing money. Because, because in their view, okay, we're driving $11 billion in revenue. We have a gross margin of 30%. That's easy math, so we're making money. But what they didn't realize is the company had taken on so much debt and the interest expense was crippling you know, to the balance sheet. But no one had communicated that to them. And so I remember going around visiting stores and doing all these town halls and people are complaining because we're kind of tightening our expense management and we're kind of being more frugal. And they're asking me, why are we taking things away? And I'm saying to them, folks, we're in real trouble here. And they didn't know it. And so I remember doing a one hour broadcast where I explained the financial condition of the company, and that broadcast changed the total mentality and trajectory of what people understood. Because we were previously, we were talking about EBITDA and EPS. We were talking about net income, earnings per share, and no one understood what that meant. Right, right. And so I just wanted to take, I took all those financially, technically financial terms that we're very comfortable with. And I broke them down in layman's terms for everyone to understand. And, and, and that taught me a lesson that sometimes in management, we don't know who our audience is and we have to do a better job of communicating directly to the employees that are on the front lines because they matter most because they're engaging with the customers. And the, and the last thing I learned was you got to make people decisions and, and organizational changes quickly uh, because the longer you wait, the more difficult it is to make those decisions that are important for the business. And, and so those are three of many things 
that I learned. But when I look at my time there, we grew sales by 9%. We improved th- free cash flow of almost $3 billion. We paid down $1.6 billion in debt. So we stabilized the company. We restructured the debt so that there is no pending debt payments that puts the company at risk. Uh, my job was far from done, but 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 I, f- I feel great about the work done, and I feel great about some of the very hardworking, committed, talented people that I met while I was there. I'm just curious about strategy, right? Because there were very specific things that you did at JCPenney. Like, um, like for example, I was reading that you were focused on revenue uh, per customer, right? Like in, instead of increasing sales and trying to acquire more and more customers, you had your your team's focus on getting existing customers to spend more. Um, and I read that you were really focused on on like data driven decision making. Um, that you would look at data and, and try to figure out how data could shape decisions. Like um, I read that at, at J.C. Penney, uh, men's shoes and women's shoes were just you know sort of thrown together in the same section, and you kind of looked at this and said. Hey, you know, we should actually put men's shoes by the suits, and then that actually increased the sale of shoes. That's exactly right. We we were trying to leverage space, and we did not understand how customers shop. And so, when we started to do just some real basic research around what we call adjacencies, meaning what product categories do you put adjacent to each other, we came to the clear conclusion that men hated to shop in the women's area and women did not like to shop where men's shoes were. So we basically took the space where we were giving to men's shoes, we gave all that space to women's shoes. We can expand the women's shoe assortment and we repositioned men's shoes in the men's area by eliminating some non-productive categories. And we saw sales increases in, in shoes in both areas because the the shopping experience just made more sense. The, the other things that we did when you think about revenue per customer, you know, why are we forcing a JCPenney customer who has a JCPenney credit card, proprietary credit card, to have to go to the other side of the mall to buy appliances? And so as we think about revenue per customer, it was simply asking the question of the customer, what do you buy somewhere else that you wish you could buy here? Right, because JCPenney stopped selling appliances, I guess, in like 1983. That's right. That's so, right. So you basically said, let's make more of these things available to our customers um, here in the store, and then they won't go to to wherever else. That's exactly right. So rather than spending the marketing dollars to acquire new customers, we, we did that because new customers are vitally important. We put the same emphasis on serving the customers that had loyally stayed with the company by simply asking the question, what do you wish you could buy more of? The relationship with Sephora Cosmetics was another example. Because if you're a female customer and you buy cosmetics, then we want to find out why could, how could we convince you to buy more from us? So all of those initiatives were designed around increasing the revenue per loyal customer while in parallel looking to see if you could also expand your customer base. So, so all the things that, that you implemented at JCPenney, I mean, those things really did work. I think I read that in, in 2015 during the holidays, JCPenney had a reported 4% increase in comparable sales uh, over the previous season. And yet, 
Um, Marvin, what what's confounding to me is that JCPenney's stock price was getting hammered, right? Like, why? What, what was going on there? Well, you know, there's there is a term used in the media called a retail apocalypse. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, it's the uh, apocalyptic view of brick-and-mortar retail surviving in this e-commerce space. So I, I just think the narrative around mall-based retail and mall-based department stores was so negative that it was hard for some of the analysts and some of the investors to see long-term viability uh, in those companies. And, and so it was just an environment where not only JCPenney, but, but other kind of mall-based retailers were under the same scrutiny and the same pressure. Uh, and it was, it was something that we just had to deal with and try to make a more relevant you know, in, investment thesis you know, to investors that, that we saw the possibility of that brand having a place you know, in the American society, that, that there was a, a rationale for a JCPenney uh, to exist. And that was just an ongoing message that we had to deliver, you know, to the investors. And, and in some cases, we delivered it effectively. Other cases, you know, we didn't. Yeah, I mean, you clearly, like, you you could start to see the beginnings of a turnaround, right? And, and I've interviewed a lot of CEOs and leaders who are, you know, really attracted to turnaround opportunities because it's exciting. You know, it's it's a challenge. And I mean, this was far and away the biggest challenge you had faced in your career, right? I mean, turning around this enormous aircraft carrier that that had been headed in the wrong direction. Um, and then you you left for a new opportunity. W- was that was that a difficult decision to leave JCPenney and to come to Lowe's where where you are now the CEO? Uh, it was a it was a brutally difficult decision. Uh, most people uh, believe that it was intuitive and simple. They look at things like, well, JCPenney had a market cap of, you know, less than a billion. Lowe's market cap is, you know, seventy five, eighty billion. You know, hundred thousand employees, so over three hundred thousand. But none of those things factored into my decision. My decision was really based on. Where did I believe I could make the greatest impact to a larger number of people? And and getting back to your point about being attracted to turnarounds, I mean, you know, a little known fact about me is over the course of my career, I can count at least 10 times where I've been passed over for promotions. Wow. 10 times. And, and the reason why that's important is because I talk a lot about the importance of being resilient as an executive. And when you're passed over 10 times in the course of your career for promotional opportunities, it's not easy to stay resilient and and stay motivated, but but I have. And, And conversely, when I think about the last 20 years of my career, all of the functional jobs, whether it was coming to Home Depot or whether it was the roles that I took on at Home Depot, and the role I took at JCPenney, exclusively, I was stepping into an opportunity that was created because someone was fired or pressured out. Huh. But but for me, uh, I I kind of thrive in that situation. And so all of these things have 
not been accident. I've been drawn to them. It's, it's been something that, that I've been attracted to. Marvin, you know, obviously you, you head up Lowe's, you're the CEO of Lowe's, and presumably your biggest competitor is Home Depot, you know, your former employer. And I have to assume there's a lot, um, there's a lot of that in, in the industry, right? Like people get poached from, from one company to the other because you have this industry experience. Like when you think about the competitive landscape, is Home Depot the company you are focused on beating, on, on sort of taking market share from? What I will say is in this space, you have a lot of really good competitors. So to put it in perspective, when you take Home Depot and Lowe's volume based on our 2018 results, we're collectively a little less than $200 billion in annual volume. And we think this is a $900 billion marketplace. Wow. So, so for us, Home Depot is one of many competitors that we look at. Obviously, having spent 12 years there uh, and still having what I consider to be lifelong friends there, it's a good comparison for the outside world to look at, just like they look at Walmart and Target or Costco and Sam. So I think it's very natural that people look at Home Depot and Lowe's and, and, and think that we get out of bed every morning and go to bed at night thinking about one another. But I would, I would say for us here at Lowe's, it's really more about how do you better serve the customer? And, and what's interesting is there has been very little sharing of employees between Home Depot and Lowe's over the last 15 years. But I saw it simply as an opportunity to make a bigger difference. And I see it as a terrific opportunity to create a better company for over 300,000 employees to work. You know, you know, Marvin, I've interviewed a lot of CEOs from, you know, from different backgrounds, you know, people who grew up poor in, in West Virginia or, you know, born in India or, or other countries around the world. Um, you were born to a poor family in Tennessee and, and you rose to the top of your industry. I mean, you, you were a Fortune 500 CEO. And, and when I think of you like as a kid, right, and looking, you know, for role models out in the world and then how you emerged from where you were, you know, looking at your dad and, you know, thinking about the possibilities. When you think about this challenge, right, like there are 500 of these biggest companies in the U.S. And last year, only three of those companies were run by African-American leaders. So how do we how do we change that? Like, how do we create a space where, you know, the next Marvin Ellison, who is a kid now looking out, um, you know, sees someone who looks like him or, or a young woman who looks like her running these companies? You know, that's a great question is one I, I think about often. Uh, I, I think it comes down to a couple of fundamental beliefs that, that that I have. I think the first one is you have to be willing to give someone the opportunity to fail in order for them to have the opportunity to be successful. And here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes, I have I've heard people sitting in a meeting going through succession planning or any kind of HR process when there's a a diverse candidate and there's an opportunity, they will find themselves saying something like, well, we have to be very careful because 
we can't put her in this role and and and, and have the possibility that she will fail. That will send a terrible message. Or we got to be really careful. We, we want to make sure that he's successful. So let's make sure that we don't put him in a role that's going to limit his opportunity to be successful. But but, but when you when you try to protect someone like that, what you're limiting is their ability to be successful. I think about the roles that that I've had to take over the years, and I talked about you know the last 20 years I'm replacing someone forced out of fire. One of the reasons why I did that was because I knew if I could go, as the old saying goes, take the road less traveled, take the jobs that no one else was standing in line saying, I'll take that assignment, that it would give me a chance to highlight to others that I had leadership ability, that that I could go in and I could solve a complex plex problem that maybe others shot away from, that really give you, you know, a risk-reward ratio. I think number two, and I give Howard Schultz credit for this, and I've gotten to know Howard fairly well over the years, you have to create an environment where you can have tough, candid discussions about a lot of the issues impacting us in this country, in our communities, so that leaders of all colors and ethnicities and genders can feel as though that they work in an environment where it's okay to be comfortable being you. One of the many things that, that, that my parents, specifically my dad, taught my siblings and I was something that I heard him say a thousand times. That was, nobody can beat you being you. Don't try to imitate someone. Don't try to be something that you're not. Find out your God-given talent and ability and then be the best at being you. And, and, and so I think in a lot of corporate environments, we create, envir- we create situations and we create cultures where diverse candidates, employees, leaders really struggle to fit in because they don't know that they can be their most authentic self and that that's a safe decision to make. And I'll give you one example because I think it's relevant to share. I remember my first assignment working at the Target corporate office. And I go to this corporate environment. I go up there with a lot of confidence and a lot of bravado thinking, you know, I'm ready for this. And I look around and there is nobody in that corporate environment that looked like me. No one who spoke like me. And I'm thinking, man, I have made a mistake. I am not going to fit in. And so I spend the next couple of months trying to fit in, try to modify how I dress I try to modify how I speak uh, and just try to look more, quote unquote, professional. And it is not going well because I come to the realization while everyone else is doing one job, I'm doing two jobs. I'm doing my core responsibility, which is job number one. And then job number two is being somebody that I'm not. So I remember one evening I came home, I'm exhausted. My wife looks at me and said, how's it going at work? You seem to be really stressed. I said, well, you know, it's not going well. I said, it's not that the job is harder than I thought. I said, I'm just really struggling to fit in. And I just, I don't know what to do. And she reminded me of what my dad has said a thousand times. She said, why don't you just relax and be yourself? And in my mind, I heard my dad's voice say, nobody can beat you being you. So I decided, you know what? I got nothing to lose because what I'm doing currently is not working that well. So I decided to go to work and rather than being so careful about 
how I pronounce every word and how I articulate every phrase. I decided just to be me. And the moment I started to do this, a funny thing happened. People became a lot more interested in what I had to say. People became more engaged with me. People wanted me to be on focus groups and working on these committees because what I quickly learned is that what I was before was a corporate commodity, which is easily accessible and inexpensive. What I became was a corporate scarcity, unique, different. And it was a great lesson for me as a young executive to understand the importance of just being me, being the best me. I still think today we, we meaning corporate, corporate America, will create environments where we think we're protecting and creating an, an easy environment to navigate for some of our diverse up-and-coming leaders, and we're doing just the opposite. So I think it's all of those things, but I think it's a big commitment from corporate America to just be more aware of the things that we need to do to create a pathway for the next up-and-coming executive that's going to be significantly better than anything I, I ever thought about being. Marvin, when you think about your career and your trajectory, do you think you were born with innate leadership skills, or, or do you think that you learned you know, how to become a leader over the course of your life? I think it's a combination of both. I think first and foremost, when we are born, I think we're born with unique skill sets that are just part of our DNA. When I look around at my kids, I see the exact same individual at 23 with my son that I saw when he was five. Well, my daughter who's 17 when she was 10 or four. So I think you are who you are at a certain foundational level, but I think the difference is, is whether or not you have intellectual curiosity to take your foundation and expand upon that. You know, I'm, I'm an introvert, extreme introvert, and most people would never know that because I'm a learned extrovert. Because when I'm in a corporate setting, when I'm in a public setting, it's important for me to know that I have to engage people. I have to go out and shake hands. I have to, you know, express myself and, and I have to make sure that, that I am communicating in a way that I don't come across as aloof. But when I'm at home, my wife will tell you that I am very reserved. I'd rather be sitting in the corner reading a book than going out to a cocktail party. I'm still the same person, but I've just learned the importance of engaging people and being more outgoing because it's necessary in order to be an effective leader. That's Marvin Ellison, the CEO of Lowe's Home Improvement. Marvin started at the company in July of 2018. A few months into the job, Lowe's stock was up 28%, but recently, it dropped pretty significantly, and Marvin responded by buying nearly a million dollars of Lowe's stock himself. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built It Productions. 